Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me today. Uh, please, uh, if you haven't yet, uh, share the show with a friend, uh, give the thumbs up, the stars, the reviews. Uh, all those things are very helpful in getting this show out to more people. If you haven't yet, please subscribe uh, on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter. Just look for the GBG podcast. Uh, and if you want to email me any questions that I want to uh, address on future episodes, uh, you can email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. All right, with that, let's dive into today's episode. It's going to be kind of a long one. Um, might have to break it up into two episodes, but I want to talk about the topic of theonomy. And I'm going to look at and kind of analyze slash critique two uh, podcast uh, episodes that I've recently listened to from individuals that I greatly respect within the Christian community. But before we look at those podcasts, I want to give a brief um, overview of what I would say uh, we mean when we use the word theonomy, for those of you who might not have heard it before. Theonomy simply means God's law, theonomos, uh, and basically the idea there is that in any system of human organization, there's always a God and there's always a law. Uh, any law that exists implies that there is a lawgiver. You have to have a lawgiver for there to be a law. And basically there's always the enforcement of some system of morality and ethics. It's an, it's an obligation or an ought that's imposed uh, upon one person by another. So there's always a law in any system, and there's always a lawgiver, there's always a god of that system. Now, in some nation states, such as in the past, Caesar was the final authority. We can even look at some episodes uh, in the Old Testament where we see this happening, uh, one being... Uh, Emperor, or should I say the king, maybe King Darius, Emperor Darius in Persia, in the book of Daniel. Uh, just to give a quick example, if you were to turn to Daniel chapter 6, uh, many of you might be familiar with that story of Daniel and the lion's den, and the context of that story is some of the other uh, government officials come to King Darius, they give him a good idea about putting a law in place where uh, people have to pray to King Darius for 30 days. They can't pray to anybody else. Um, now, when Darius likes this law, gets it passed, seals it, signs it, and everything is now uh, put in place, uh, Daniel is essentially put in a trap, and he ends up continuing to pray to the Lord uh, in the open, essentially, with the open windows three times a day. And his enemies find him uh, doing this, and they bring it up to Darius, and they basically say to enforce the law. And here's, here's what they say. They say uh, in Daniel 6, verse 11, They came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. So, even the king there is recognizing there is a higher authority above him. It's the tradition of the Medes and the Persians where 
if a law is made, it cannot be unmade. It cannot be revoked, even by the very king who made it. So even King Darius is underneath uh, a law that's above him. So uh, the issue is not whether there will be a ultimate authority, whether there will be a God, but the question is, which God will it be? Now, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is Lord. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And if he is Lord, then he has something to say about how human society is supposed to be ordered. And just because society isn't Christian doesn't mean that there's no standard. It just means that the society is not following that standard. That's really all it means. The standard is still there. God is still there. His law is still there. His requirements are still there, but no one's following them. So the question that when we're talking about theonomy is how does God's law from the Old Testament, let's say, primarily apply today. And there are multiple confessions of faith that address this. Um, For example, the London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith, both in chapter 19, talk about the law of God. And we're going to take a look at that in more detail later as we get into these podcasts uh, that I want to review. The the basic issue, though, is that theonomists, they differ with each other on specifics regarding penalties, okay, death penalty for this, for that, how exactly you would you would punish someone, but all of them would agree that we are taking the principles of the laws uh, in the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament and trying to apply them to uh, modern society today. And the New Testament can guide us in that. We, we recognize that we're under the New Covenant, so we have to look at how Jesus fulfilled the law we have to look at how the law applies to Christians in the church and then how the law might apply to the greater society. And one aspect that gets forgotten a lot of times is that as Christians, we're trying to be good stewards of all that we have, whatever God has given us. And if that means that we've been given authority and power over others, well then, how do we steward that? How should we act when we have authority and responsibility over other people? What does it mean to be a steward? of authority and power. I mean, because part of the part of the cultural mandate, the, the, the command given to Adam and Eve to, to take dominion, be fruitful and multiply, um, that includes how you structure your society, how you wield the sword. Because basically anyone who's in power, if they are a Christian and they want to honor God and love their neighbor, they have to ask themselves, how are they going to wield their power? What things should they enforce? What things should they not enforce? How should they treat those who are under their care? So that's really where theonomy has a lot to say about that, because it basically means, what does God's law say about loving your neighbor? At the end of the day, the only debate is not whether uh, God's law applies, okay, but it's, it's how it applies. And again, we'll look at the confessions in a little bit, but they talk about how the general equity of the law, basically the principles underlying uh, the law. So with that, as a brief introduction, I want to first take a look at a podcast that was from Nine Marks Church. The podcast involved Jonathan Lehman, Mark Dever, and T. David Gordon, who was their guest on the show. So Mark Dever, uh, Pastor Dever, and Pastor Lehman, uh, they host this podcast and they brought T. David Gordon on to discuss theonomy. Uh, so I'm going to play, I'm going to begin playing a couple clips. I'm not going to play necessarily the whole thing straight through, but I have a couple timestamps here. Uh, it's a decent amount that we're going to be looking at, and I'm going to stop it 
at certain points in order to uh, give some comments and some critiques. Because I do think that they kind of treat theonomy a bit unfairly. They attribute most of it to David Bonson, uh, who was a theonomist who advocated for trying to apply God's law. He's not the only one, but he's one of the more well-known theonomists, and he has since passed away uh, several years ago. But they're going to spend a little bit of time talking about him and talking about theonomy. So the first clip I want to play has to do with what they say regarding the definition of uh, theonomy. Theonomists mean, they mean that the Mosaic law, even the civil laws of Moses, right, are to endure forever. And so it rejects the, the distinction made in chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession. And Mark, I'm not sure if it's chapter 19 in the London Baptist or not, because you know, the chapters are not always in sync with each other. But in the chapter on the law of God, at least uh, in Westminster, one and two deal with the moral law, and then uh, sections three and four deal with the ceremonial and the civil law, and arguing they both have, uh, have, have been abrogated together with the state of those people. And theonomy disagrees with that, and it lumps the civil law in with the moral law. Bonson often writes moral hyphen civil law. I want to stop there for a second and just point out, I'm, I can't speak for what Bonson himself regarding uh, the relationship between civil and moral law would would advocate for. But in my understanding of theonomy, um, theonomists are just trying to take the moral principles from those civil laws, which is really not that different than, actually it's not at all different, it's quite quite in line with what the Apostle Paul does when he takes the law concerning muzzling an ox and applies it to pay, people paying their pastors. So that's a purely civil law, but within it, uh, Apostle Paul is finding a moral more principle that is very applicable to the uh, New New Testament and New Testament era, the church. So I don't know, and that was uh, T. David Gordon. If I didn't mention that already, I don't know if he's being entirely fair and uh, how he's treating Bonson or not. But um, with regards to the Confessions of Faith, I mean, I would affirm what they say regarding general equity of the law, um, the confessions. And in fact, here's what the 1689 London Baptist Confession says. This is chapter 19, section 4. To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of modern use. But then the confession goes on to talk about the moral law, which forever is binding on all people. Okay, and then... In section six, it, it spends a long, lot of time. This is both both confessions uh, speak about this. Say that even though believers aren't under the law as a covenant of works, yet the law is of great use to them as well as to others as a rule of life. You know, informing them of the will of God and their duty uh, to walk accordingly. And it goes on to talk about. Uh, it shows them. Uh, what God speaks about obedience, what blessings they may expect upon performing, and again, not due to them as some kind of covenant of works, uh, like so that they can't, uh, it's not, not going to get their salvation from it, okay, but really how they should live. And so, uh, both confessions speak to the law being useful in that regard, um, which I would say most, if not all, theonomists would agree with. So, I think what they're trying to say, what what theonomists are saying is that the civil laws do have moral principles, 
that we can derive from them uh, based on the general equity found within them. And what what T. David Gordon seems to be doing here is uh, basically attacking a straw man. I don't know uh, if David Bonson would agree with with uh, what uh, T. David Gordon said about his own position, uh, but really. Um, that's kind of what I wanted to say about that aspect of it. But there's one more thing I want to point out, that the civil laws of Israel were supposed to be not just not just for them to live in the land, but it was also supposed to be an example for the nations around them. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5, and 5 through 8, it says this, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So, the the laws given to Israel were to be an example to them, uh, to the nations around them. Uh, it's not just for Israel, but it it was for others outside of Israel. I want to jump to a section now where they talk about the necessity argument from necessity of Scripture, uh, and uh, what what they have to say about that. So, so this is where uh, it's a few minutes later uh, they'll talk about sufficiency of Scripture and how it applies. Uh, to uh, statecraft and to civil government. Uh, so here we go. Yeah. How there seems to always be an implicit argument from necessity. Can you can you explain that? Yeah, I think what happens is when we really do have a high view of Scripture, and we do, right, we, we really do believe it's a light to our feet and a lamp to our path and so forth, um, we, we love the illumination it gives to us in all of our moral and intellectual darkness. And in one sense, we wish it would just shine everywhere. And so that's perfectly understandable and positive. Good instinct. Right. It's a good instinct. That's a good way of putting it. That's a very good instinct. Um, but that we might desire it to shine everywhere does not mean necessarily that it does shine everywhere. And so what I found was when I was having conversations with people and I gave my arguments about Matthew 5, 17 and how it should be understood – Inevitably, instead of responding to my exegesis, they would say, but if we don't have guidance from there, where do we turn? And so I always seem to, rhetorically at least, what I always ran into is people believing we had to have a divine constitution for statecraft. They just believed it was necessary. And, of course, I just don't think it's necessary because if it were necessary, we would have it. But it's very clear from Calvin and others that they didn't think it would be possible to expect one form of government to be universally applicable to all peoples. Well, let me pause there. So he says that it's not necessary, and if it was necessary, we would have we would have a divine constitution for statecraft. Well, I, I think that, again, uh, Scripture is uh, applicable to all areas of life. I mean, we, we, we believe it to be the final authority in faith and practice, and it speaks to how humans are to treat each other, right? I mean— if we're talking about uh, loving God and loving our neighbor, well, the, the, what is civil government involving? Civil government basically involves that. How do you love your neighbor? How, how do you enforce certain restrictions? How do you um, 
just address issues that come up between two neighbors, essentially. So I do think that Scripture does have something to say about statecraft. Um, one thing to consider also is uh, that we do have the example that's given to Israel. I already mentioned Deuteronomy chapter 4, where their laws were to be a basically a, a light to the nations around them. I mean, essentially the nations would see Israel, and they would say, these pagan nations would say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Okay, and it says uh, these, these laws would be, will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Okay, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous? So uh, it's supposed to be an example, and we also have to understand that we know as Christians that people are sinners. And that should guide us in how we structure our governments. Because if people are sinners, then when they have power, they're going to take advantage of it. They'll be tempted to use it inappropriately and to lord over others when they shouldn't. And we don't want that to happen. So our idea of sin, the Christian concept of, of sin, total depravity, uh, man's uh, sinful nature, leads us to establish checks and balances, along with the division of power, to limit the effect of sin within those who wield the sword. So that's a distinctly Christian concept, and a very important one, and one of the reasons why we have the kind of government we have today in Western cultures. So uh, we'll, I'm going to continue on here uh, with the next next clip. And Mark, Mark, this is where I think this becomes pastorally germane to a lot of pastors, because you're, you're having conversations with members and they feel that impulse, like surely the Bible gives us principles for these things. And, and, and you're left saying, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's in the domain of wisdom. Well, when you say principles, the conversation is much easier. Because, sure. because principles, as, as David said earlier, yeah, we can, we can see a lot of God's character reflected in his desires for how we relate to each other as creatures made in his image. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about taking the exact imprint of Old Testament Israel, and saying that there must be uh, coercive physical prevention of idolatry in nations today. Well, that's where we get nothing in the New Testament that would affirm that that was the vision that the Christians had and that they worked for, that, that was their understanding. Well, I want to pause there because, I again, I greatly respect uh, Pastor Dever, but I think that was a misapplication of the text. And also, how Theonomus would understand it, because what is idolatry under the covenant nation of Israel? I mean, it's it's treason, right? So there's always a law and there's always a God. And Israel's covenant in, in Sinai was their constitution. They swore an oath that they would, uh, they would ob abide by the rules. Uh, they made a covenant between them and God that that was going to be uh, how they lived their lives. Okay, he, he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people. Um, when, so... When, when they were, if they were to worship another god, and God is their king, by the way, they are essentially committing treason. They are breaking the constitution that they signed and that they affirmed and agreed to. Um, that's what happens when you worship another god in that context. Now, interestingly, all nations on the planet have a concept of treason, and usually treason has some very serious consequences. Most of the time, it is the death penalty. 
uh, even technically in the United States it is. So there's always a concept of treason in any society, and it's a crime punishable by death, and rightly so, because to commit treason is to essentially try to undermine and destroy the that current constitutional order and the authority that uh, you're under. So theonomists aren't going to say, at least not as far as I know, that uh, we have to, you know, anyone who commits idolatry, you have to put them to death in the modern nation state of the United States. Well, no, but there are moral principles that you see in the laws regarding idolatry that can be applicable in the church. So, for instance, if people are teaching false uh, false doctrine, or if they're worshiping other gods or trying to bring in bring in worship of other gods in the church, that would be a, a uh, basis for excommunication. We do see a parallel between the death death penalty and excommunication in the New New, New Testament. And it would also have principles for or bring application to how nations should deal with treason and any attempt to undermine or destroy that nation's constitution. So, again, I don't think that Pastor Dever is being entirely fair uh, with this here because, again, I don't think theonomists are saying that we just take an exact imprint of the nation of Israel and just smack it onto any nation today. Um, theonomists, as far as I know, don't hold that position. It's a very extreme and radical position. And what theonomists are doing is trying to take those principles, uh, all the principles from all the laws, uh, whichever moral principles there are within those laws, and apply them. Just like the Apostle Paul applies ox muzzling with paying your pastors. You mentioned science, education, medicine, and how natural revelation is sufficient for those. Correct. And and you say statecraft is similar. It's it's we don't sure. expect medical advice to be in scripture on this, that, and the other. And and right. so is statecraft. Take a little wine for your stomach. Same way. Well, okay. And, and 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 you know, here's what Calvin would have said. He was talking about laws and he said to, I would have preferred uh, to pass over this matter in utter silence if we're not aware that here many dangerously go astray, for there are some who deny that a commonwealth is duly framed, which neglects the political system of Moses and is ruled by the common laws of nations. Now listen to the sentence. Let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it false and foolish. So Calvin regarded the notion— And David, that, that sentence is where? Uh, book 4 of the Institutes, then section 20 and subsection 14. 4-2014 of the Institutes. 4 2014. Yeah, and that was the Battles translation. And there are five or six or seven of those kinds of quotes in Calvin. He plainly didn't think that the uh, the theocratic state of Israel was to be a model for other states. I want to pause for a second there. I'm going to look at that uh, passage from Calvin a little bit later because the other podcast that we're going to look at briefly um, mentions the same issue. And I really think that both... Uh, uh, Gordon uh, Lehman and uh, Endeavor here, as well as uh, the next group of of theologians in the, in the next podcast, they are mis misunderstanding what Calvin is saying there. And I want to go through very carefully and look at all of Calvin's words in that section, both before and after. Look at the context to uh, kind of bring some some correction. I think that they basically went a bit far there. So uh, let's continue. The theocratic state of Israel was to be a model for other states. 
And of course, that raises, you know, the most interesting question, Mark, you were talking about biblical theology and, you know, how this informs things. When people are wrestling with the Old Testament, they have to deal with the theocratic Israel, don't they? It's big. I mean, we only have 11 chapters of Genesis until you have the call of Abram. And so from Genesis 12 through 50, you're still dealing with the ancestry of those who will become part of the Sinai covenant. And so the whole thing from Genesis 12 to basically the end of Malachi deals with the Israelite theocracy. Now, maybe Job doesn't, and there's a few spots in there here and there that don't, but for the most part, it does. So what you do with the Israelite theocracy is one of the most consequential hermeneutical steps of yeah. anyone understanding the Bible. Yeah, and I would agree with that, by the way. That is that is true. Well, you need to be able to exegete the nation of Israel and those passages properly. And a couple episodes ago, I spent some time looking at how to do that, Basically, it involves the idea of the, of principalism, taking the principles of each of the laws and using the example that we see in the New Testament, how the, how the New Testament writers do the same thing with the Old Testament laws, and then just copying that methodology and applying that to, uh, to other laws. So again, I use the example of the ox muzzling because that's the clearest example where a civil law a principle of the civil law is taken and applied to how people pay their pastors in church. Um, that, that same civil law would have application uh, not just in the church, but also in the civil government and in greater society, economy, whatever the case may be. But but the Apostle Paul also takes laws you know, regarding sexuality, and he condemns the church that's in Corinth for practicing uh, pretty wicked behaviors and tells the church in Corinth to purge the evil that's within them. And that same language of purge the evil among you is, is several times in the Old Testament regarding the death penalty. And when Paul uses that language, he's referring to excommunication. So, but both, in principle, are the cutting off of the person from the greater community. So I think we can, we can use those as examples. So for some, Israel is essentially, the theocracy of Israel is a model for the state, theonomy. For some, Israel is a model for the church, right? Um, and then for some, Israel is a model of the final consummated kingdom in the life to come. Okay, I want to stop there because he mentions that how you exegete Israel for the Old Testament will basically lead you to three conclusions. Some would say that Israel is just a model for the, for the modern state. And, and I would say in some ways, yes, again, by, by principle. Uh, we see this again in Deuteronomy 4. Uh, I think that a lot of folks mis mis they, they overlook that passage. And I don't know why, because it's, it's such a very obvious passage when it talks about how Moses is telling Israel that the laws given to them are going to be wisdom and understanding in the sight of all peoples around them. And that when those peoples see those laws and see Israel, they will uh, basically see how great God is, the God of Israel is, and how wise his laws are. So, I mean, it's clearly there's a concept of modeling going on there. Um, okay, but that being said, a model for the church. Um, yeah, again, insofar as those principles are applied to uh, the church, just like Apostle Paul does, and model for the final kingdom of God. Uh, yeah, I mean, in some sense, when when Christ returns and, and inaugurates his, his final uh, kingdom of new heaven and new earth, we're going to see perfect love um, amongst, uh, amongst neighbors, right? So there's going to be a perfect uh, society, if you will, that's present. But 
uh, essentially the kingdom of God involves uh, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the church is where we see the kingdom of God most clearly. So, and the kingdom of God extends to wherever Christians live. So that's where I think all three are true, right? It's not just it's not just model for the state, model for the church, model for the kingdom of God. It's all three of them because the kingdom of God is already and not yet. The kingdom of God does exist already. It's also coming into the world. It's still coming. And it's also going to come in the sense that when Jesus returns, it's going to be finally established and inaugurated in full. But in in every in, in all three ways, though, it's true that it's it was, it is, it is to come. Uh, and so wherever Christians are, wherever the Holy Spirit dwells, is where the fruits of the Spirit are, and there is peace, righteousness, and joy. And that's the kingdom of God involves those things. And that doesn't just happen in church. It also happens in the home, amongst Christian parents, fathers, husbands, wives, mothers. It also happens in the workplace as Christians go out and do do business. And it also happens in the civil sphere when Christians who have power try to figure out how to be good stewards of what they've been given. Okay, well, what I want to do now is jump to, I'm still in the same podcast, but there's a section where they talk about uh, Matthew chapter 5, and I want to spend just a few uh, minutes uh, taking a look at that here. And so the Sinai Covenant is in force during the time of his ministry. You may recall in 23 when he says of, of Matthew, they sit on Moses' seat, so do and practice what they teach, hmm. right? Now, there's no way the Apostle Paul would say, Gamaliel's sitting right there on Moses' seat, do and practice whatever he says. Mm-hmm. But before the dying and rising of Christ, the Mosaic law remained in force. And so Jesus in his incarnate work does not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And once he has fulfilled it, he has fulfilled it, and he's gone on. Bonson actually thought that Plerao there in Matthew 5 fulfilled. should be translated um, ratify. Got it. It should be <clears throat> But remember that it doesn't say just the law, but the law and the prophets. And I don't think you find anywhere else in sacred writings where you have the language of prophetes and plerao, where it means anything other than to bring to fruition the thing previously prophesied. Okay, I want to stop there because we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, which is, again, a very important passage uh, as it speaks to this issue of God's law and its continued application there. So... um, It really comes down to the issue of fulfillment, and I want to read that passage in its context. I know they just kind of briefly went over it. They didn't really uh, go through it uh, verse by verse, but here is Matthew 5, uh, verses uh, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what do we see going on here? Well, the the one argument that T. David Gordon made was that it's, it's it's still the old covenant, even when Jesus is saying these words, okay, and that's true. Uh, it hasn't, you know, he hasn't died and, and and been resurrected and ascended quite yet. But here's, but look at what Jesus says. He says he's coming to fulfill the law. Okay, fair enough. And he says until heaven and earth pass away, 
not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, there are two ways to understand that. One is, well, that is true until Jesus' death. So basically, all is accomplished when he's on the cross and he says it is finished. And then we can say all is accomplished. But then that whole phrase of heaven and earth pass away. Well, what does that mean? Because from the surface level reading of it, it would it would seem heaven and earth passing away. That's like that's second coming language. That is new heavens and new earth kind of language. And I actually I lean towards that. But there is an argument that could be made as a possibility that passing away of heaven and earth is a metaphor for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, because in the Gospel of Luke chapter twenty one, verses twenty nine through thirty three. Uh, Jesus says this, and this is with regards to the parable of the fig tree. He says, he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, it's kind of, it's a, it's a cryptic passage in some sense, um, Certainly his words will last forever, and maybe that's what he's saying, that even even after his final coming and the final judgment, his words will last forever. But an argument could be made that when he, because the parable of the fig tree is referring to Israel, and that when they see these things happening, uh, and they see heaven and earth pass away, that uh, Jesus' words will not pass away. And there is a sense in which the temple uh, and Jerusalem were um, an image of heaven and earth together. Uh, meeting together, kind of like the Garden of Eden would have been heaven on earth. So there is an argument to be made for that. But what's interesting is that uh, is fig, the fig tree is a picture of Israel, and Jesus curses the tree because he sees no fruit on it. Israel is not bearing the fruit of righteousness and therefore is condemned. That's why he goes and curses the tree. So, But again, what is righteousness? It has to do with loving God and loving our neighbor. And what does it mean to do those things? Well, we have to look at God's law. And that's where, again, I lean more towards when Jesus says the law has been fulfilled and not abolished, and that it, this is a continuing thing right now, even though we're past the, the resurrection and ascension. It's because Jesus says this, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the kingdom of heaven is is already and not yet. It's still coming. It's still here, and it still will come in the future. So even today, if people are relaxing the commandments and teaching others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that, that, does that mean that we can't eat you know, bacon and things like that? No, we have to look at the commandments in light of Christ's coming. He has fulfilled them. In what way has he fulfilled them, and what does that mean for us today? So that's what I want to say about Matthew chapter 5. I wish they would have gone a little bit more in depth on that, but that's, you know, that's that's as far as they as they went. So now I want to jump to a section where they talk about why has theonomy come back. So let's hear what they have to say about that. David, why do you think that uh, Bonson's stuff with Bonson himself personally gone out of the scene for a while now, why do you think his stuff that was uh, biggish when you and I were at Gordon-Conwell in the 80s. Why is that coming back right now? Or, or is it, are we just imagining it? Yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting. I was thinking the other day, uh, 
as soon as Jonathan had contacted me, I was surprised to hear that in Baptist circles, you're sort of seeing this resurgence of theonomy, because I thought it had finally died in our circles, you know, and I, I was thinking, you know, that we had a nice funeral for it and buried it. Uh, so, for instance, when we examine candidates at our presbytery, I'm not even sure we ask them about that anymore. I don't recall the last time we even asked a candidate at Ascension Presbytery about his views on theonomy. Mm-hmm. So I thought it largely had died in our circles. So I suspect, uh, before we started recording, where our conversation was going is, is it possible that the kind of uh, cultural upheaval that we're experiencing at a moment like this is leading people to grasp around uh, for some solid foundation by which they can address matters of state and matters of public policy. And so theonomy offers them that. An Australian political scientist named Karen Stenner in a paper on authoritarianism said authoritarianism isn't synonymous with any one ideological framework. Rather, she says what it is is a functional disposition a functional disposition, concerned with maximizing oneness and sameness, uh, especially in conditions where the things that make us one and the same, common authority, shared values, appear to be under threat. So my sense is that authoritarian leaders and philosophies are going to become increasingly attractive in seasons of political and cultural opposition and turmoil. When our freedoms and values and lives and so forth, seeing them under threat, yeah, we're going to cast about looking for the quote-unquote strong man. I want to pause there. Uh, so first, uh, T. David Gordon mentions that it came, it's coming back in Baptist circles because people are trying to grasp around for some solid foundation by which they can address matters of state and public policy. Well, I, I, my take on that is that those foundations of our society and public policy have already been eroded for a long time now. So we're just now seeing the crumbling of the walls and the floors and the ceiling taking place. But the damage was done a long time before that. So it just seems like we weren't worried before because the thing was still standing pretty well. We weren't really addressing the issue before. But now that we're seeing things crumble, all of a sudden we're becoming very concerned about the foundation. But we should have been concerned about the foundation all along. And that's the problem. So Yes, maybe views on theonomy are coming back now because now we're finally recognizing the issue is a foundational issue. But I would say, you know, we should have been looking at it earlier. Um, all, all societies have to have their foundation on something. That foundation is either going to be the rock of Christ or the shifting sand of some idol. It's either Christ or chaos. You can't you can't have it both ways. And if you're going to erode the foundation, it's eventually going to uh, make itself apparent. And by that time, though, it's too late. Now, I also want to mention a few things about what Lehman said regarding that quote from Karen Stenner. So he quotes her regarding authoritarianism. Um, okay, I would agree with the definition of authoritarian that, that a definition of authoritarianism, where it's all about oneness and maximizing oneness and sameness, especially when things are unstable. But oneness and sameness does not mean chaos, okay? Because what we want is, is ordered liberty. And actually, that's what Calvin uses in his institutes, a balance between the one and the many, a balance between form and freedom. You want liberty, but you also want structure at the same time. So theonomists are not suggesting that we all put on the same uniform, say the same thing, and march at the same tune. We're not not suggesting uniformity. We're, We're suggesting equal weights and measures, okay? Not equality of outcome, all right, but equal under the law, under God's law. Okay, so really being concerned about authoritarianism is not the answer. Theonomists 
the Anonymous aren't saying that they just want authority and we just want to make everyone the same. No, the question is, there's going to be some law that governs our society. There's going to be some ethical standard uh, as the foundation for our society. The Anonymous are simply saying, it might be a good idea to have our, our moral and ethical foundation be God's law and his word. Just saying, you know, it might be better that way than, say, some other uh, philosophical system. So, now, with that, I wanted to jump to another section where, because uh, they mentioned it a little bit earlier regarding psychological certainty and I, I th- uh, amongst uh, congregants, and I think it's going to be important for us to take a look at that uh, real quick. Some of us can live with that, and some people can't. Mark, we've had a lot of conversations lately about politics in this particular moment and yeah. the divisions we're feeling and the, the struggling with members who feel strongly this way versus that way. Fair to say that, again, in a moment like this, a lot of what pastors are going to be dealing with is members looking for one form of certainty or another that maybe this moment doesn't afford. And that behind a lot of these difficult conversations and tensions we're feeling in the church is this impulse, this fear uh, that, that seeks out a kind of certainty that maybe the Bible doesn't provide us answers to. A statement in the form of a question. Yeah, kind of the other. Yeah, what do you think? Is that a is that a reasonable pastoral assessment of the moment? Yeah. yeah. What do we do then, as pastors, in response to conversations about theonomy, in response to these <clears throat> desires for control, for certainty? We continue to deploy Scripture faithfully in the pulpit in conversations. We bring forward principles that we see that are relevant uh, for what we should expect in our public life together. And we try to do good thinking, and we encourage Christians who are in those political and legal and philosophical and social realms to think well as best they can with the light they have. And we can, you know, we can teach like, you know, we have the Christians in Government Course Seminar at CHBC that Mm -hmm. you initially wrote, where we try to help Christians think about what it means to have this kind of stewardship that we have in our society that you don't see in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So I want to stop there, because that's exactly what theonomists are trying to argue for. Um, and I, again, I greatly appreciate Mark Dever's words there, you know, continue to deploy Scripture faithfully in the pulpit and in conversations. We bring forward principles that we see that are relevant for what we should expect in our public life together. We try to do good thinking, okay, and stewardship. And that's that's exactly right. That's exactly how... Theonomists, as far as I know, would they would all affirm that, because um, how is I don't see how that's different than what theonomy affirms. We look for principles from God's law that apply to society today. We need to know what it means to pursue righteousness and justice. Deploying Scripture and bringing forward principles is exactly what we theonomists are doing when we look at God's law and see well how does that apply today in my situation as let's say a governor or a senator, or president. So stewardship of power and authority is exactly what theonomists are talking about. If someone's in office, how do they wield the sword properly? So, again, I really appreciate uh, Pastor Dever's words on that, although I don't know, I, I guess he's, just, he's, he's thinking of theonomy as being something other than what we're saying it is, and so maybe a, to both sides are talking past each other, but what they seem to be doing is attacking a straw man, um, this false idea of, of theonomy, uh, whereas it appears they be, they're actually holding to a form of theonomy. Maybe they're not holding to it consistently, but they at least affirm 
the same thing that we are affirming as well. So now I want to go to another section that uh, Mark Dever goes on to talk about the uh, the old covenant in more detail here. The, the purpose of theocratic Sinai covenant Israel was to prepare the nation for the Messiah. Right. Uh, that was the purpose. It was a unique purpose. That purpose has been accomplished, praise God. Uh, the Messiah has come. and As David said from Matthew 5. That's right. And therefore, we're not confused about the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law reflects the eternal character of God, but it does so in the specific historical situation of preparing a particular people for the coming of the Messiah, who has now, praise God, come. Well, I want to stop there because... I, again, respectfully, I uh, have to disagree. I want to partially disagree. I, I certainly agree that the purpose of Israel is to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. No doubt about that. But again, I'll, I want to reiterate, I wish that they would talk about Deuteronomy chapter 4, because there is another purpose here. It's, it's implicit, but the other purpose of Israel is to be a model for the, the nations around them. They are to be the wisdom and understanding and sight of the peoples. Uh, they are uh, going to show the world around them how great and good God is and how wise his laws are. Okay, so that's a, there's a sense of modeling or evangelism, if you will, or a beacon of light, if you will, to the nations around them. That's ultimately fulfilled in Christ, of course. It's not, but it's it's not just that these laws were given um, so that Israel would know that they needed a Messiah. Again, there are three purposes of the law. Point you, first one, point you to Christ. Second one, show you how to live. Third one, restrain evil. Okay, well, Pastor Dever is just mentioning the first one, point people to Christ, point Israel to Christ, prepare Israel for, for, for the Messiah. True, but the laws are also there to restrain evil, restrain Israel's evil and the evil of nations around them, but also to show what it means to live, to flourish in uh, in the land. So uh, I think that's just uh, one thing I wish uh, they would go into a little bit more. All right, just a few more clips from this podcast before we jump to the uh, next one. So for instance, in this case, I'm not so sure that having definitive opinions about statecraft is all that important. Well, I want to stop there because I kind of find that to be a very egregious statement. Um, I'm not sure that having definite, definitive opinions of statecraft is all that important. Just Tell that to those who are living in North Korea right now. I mean, how is it not important to try to determine how society should be ordered and how the, the sword of, of power and authority should be wielded? I, I think that is very important. We, we need to have some definitive opinions on these matters, and they need to be informed and biblical opinions. If I was pastoring in D.C., I would think it would be more important. Well, or less, or less. Right, or less, or less, <laughs> yeah. right? But so part of it would be when people say uh, we, we need definitive answers and you say, no, no, God gives us not only answers, but some of them more, are more definitive and some less definitive. And we accept what light he gives us. Yeah. David, reflecting on this historically, I just think of if I am a Christian pastor in New Jersey in 1780 and I've got 70 members in my church and 30 of them are loyal to the king and 40 of them think the revolution is a good idea. Can, can we stay in one church? Yeah, you ought to be able to. I'm going to stop there. I, I don't know. I, I really have an issue with that, with that statement because that doesn't really make any sense. Because if the elders of that church truly believe that the American Revolution is a violation of Romans 13, 
well, then they should administer church discipline on those congregants because they are openly rebelling or supporting the rebellion. And it, But, you know, on the other side, it wouldn't be an issue if the elders supported the revolution because those who join the rebellion are free to do so because the, the elders support it. And, but those who abstain because they support the king, um, they're also free to abstain. They don't have to join the revolution. But then again, if a church member believed that the revolution was evil and violated Romans 13, but that the church leadership was complicit in re- revolting and, and supporting it, then that congregant would have every right to leave the church. So I don't really see, I don't think staying in, the, in one ch- church is an option if people truly believe that, that they said that, that they actually uh, believe that regarding the revolution. So that's, I find that to be interesting. Now, in, in actual fact, it probably didn't happen, yeah. right? Um, but you ought to be able to. Because you would morally true. interpret some of your members' activities as illegitimate rebellion. rebellion. Uh, that's right. If you didn't believe the revolution was justified, and then even even more strongly, you know, abolition and, and anti-abolition in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Yeah, that's right. In fact, you may recall uh, that the Reverend McFeeders out in St. Louis, you know, he was in a border state in the in the uh, 1860s when Lincoln was president, and uh, he was he was jailed for sedition. And the reason he was jailed for sedition, he never indicated whether he was pro or against abolition or slavery. He never talked about the the uh, the friction confronting the nation at that time. But someone presented a child to him for infant baptism. Now you can say, all right, you guys created your own problem. So, all right, we did. And, uh, but the book of church order said, and the minister shall baptize the child in the name given him by his parents in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. And someone had presented a child whose name was something like Robert E. Lee Smith or something like that. And so McFeeters baptized him in the name that he was given at the hospital by his parents. And he was jailed for sedition for doing so. And he appealed his case to President Lincoln. They put him on a train and sent him to Washington, D.C. Lincoln offered him a pardon, and McFeeters wouldn't take it because he said that implies guilt, and I did nothing seditious, right? But that's how hot things were in those days. Once the church allows itself to render these kinds of opinions, uh, the sky's the limits for how far people would go. Well, I want to stop there because that example of a a pastor, McFeeters, uh, not— saying anything about slavery, never talking about it, uh, confronting the nation. Um, I find it sad that he never spoke out against race-based chattel slavery. Such slavery is a clear violation of the book of Exodus, the law regarding man-stealing. Um, such, such behavior deserved death, according to the Old Testament law, uh, both in those who stole the person and sold them, and those who purchased the person, both the seller and the buyer, were to be put to death. And it's pretty clear that the death penalty in the Old Testament very much parallels excommunication in the New. Whenever we see the death penalty in the Old Testament, uh, you would see the apostles uh, apply that to excommunication in the New. So at the very least, um, people in the church who are engaged in activity that deserves death penalty, they should probably be put under church discipline for that behavior uh, in the church. So I don't entirely understand this example. I don't think it's a very good example. I would actually be very critical of, of such a pastor who says nothing 
about slavery in the midst of such a hotbed issue that's so relevant at that time. I mean, Christians are supposed to talk about these things, um, or else what are we doing? So let me continue. The church is not a little 12-foot sailboat that gets blown around all over the place. She's the Queen Mary, for crying out loud. Well, she and acts she like the 12-foot sailboat, but no, right? you're, you're absolutely right. Right. She, she ought to go on and chart her course, and she ought to devote herself to the Word and to prayer and to the ordinances of the church, and she ought to go on and this deflect off her and this deflect off her. She mm-hmm. should be making waves, not rolling over in them. Well, okay. But that's what the great—what's the Great Commission? The Great Commission is to disciple the nations. Well, what does that look like? Should the church disciple fathers to be better fathers and stop beating their wives and children? Shouldn't the church also disciple leaders to be better leaders and stop abusing those citizens who are under their authority? So, yeah, the, the church is supposed to be devoting itself to the word, prayer, and ordinances, and teaching the nations, discipling them, and baptizing them. And that also means teaching people how to be good stewards of what they have, teaching the farmer uh, how to run his business well, without cutting corners, without cheating, um, teaching parents how to how to do a better job of parenting and raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and discipling and teaching leaders on how to wield the sword properly and not abuse the people under their care. Any, any last comments, Mark? Praise God for the clarity of his law. Amen. Well, I've... Uh, I kind of find that to be ironic. I mean, they spent the entire podcast essentially saying that God's law is not very clear, yet here Dever praises God for giving us such a clear law. Well, if the law is so clear, why don't we apply it in our attempt to disciple the nations and teach people how to wield the sword? All right, well, so this went a little bit longer than I expected. Um, I do want to touch on the next podcast, Uh, so maybe I'll... I'll, I'll do that in another episode. It'll be part one and part two there. And I also want to spend um, some minutes going through Calvin's chapter on the civil magistrate, particularly that quotation uh, that uh, that Dever, Lehman, and Gordon mentioned uh, when, when Calvin uh, basically criticized the use of the Mosaic Law as an exact model for the nations, and I want to look at what exactly Calvin is, is, is referring to and why he's saying that. So in the next episode, uh, I want to look at an episode, a podcast from the White Horse Inn uh, with Michael Horton and a couple other couple other guys and go through some of the things they said. A lot of that's going to be similar, but they do bring up some points that uh, were not brought up in this pastor's talk with uh, uh, Jonathan Lehman and Mark Dever. So I really encourage you to listen to part two of this series where we look through that podcast and then take a look at John Calvin's writings on the civil magistrate. So anyways, thank you again for tuning in. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. And I appreciate you stopping by. And until next time, take care and